Welcome to the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ 102.1, where we challenge the assumptions of our current society to resist oppression and investigate alternative ways of living for a world based on justice, solidarity, and sustainability. Welcome to the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ 102.1 FM. You are tuned into your local community, non-profit, volunteer-run station. My name's Andy and I'll be hanging out with you for the next hour. I'm coming to you this week from uh, back in Australia, but a long way from Brisbane, down on the Murray River in Yorta Yorta country. And if you have regularly been listening to the start of this show over the last uh, year or two, you would know that I do like to travel around a bit and I'm interested in places and I'm interested in what it means to relate to country as we might say, you know, watch how how the interplay between place and ourselves and the communities that we make and how these things affect each other. Now, some people have called this line of thinking psychogeography. It was a term coined by the Situationists, a group of French uh, radical artists in the 1950s and 60s. And I think for them, it was a way of finding what else is possible. You know, how can we intervene in the humdrum of industrial capitalism to capture our imaginations and think about what else could be possible? And one of them was trying to look actually at what is under your nose, but what you ignore because we're just taught to think about what's profitable or what uh, help us gain some level of status or uh, convenience or something like that. So they came up with this idea of psychogeography as a practice and um, it's influenced different people in the half a century since then, including two Australian writers who I will be interviewing on today's show. One of them is Vanessa Berry, who writes the Mirror Sydney blog um, about her excursions around Sydney, kind of exploring the places, a lot of the sort of neglected places and some of the... Um, forgotten history of that town and another is Nick Gadd who uh, does a similar thing in Melbourne and also has a blog uh, called Melbourne Circle and also has written a book by that name. So we're going to be exploring a few different places. One week maybe I'll do a psychogeography um, in Brisbane show um, but I do think it's interesting and useful for us to read about people doing it in different places particularly in Australia. Uh, I also am a psychogeography enthusiast. Going back a few years, I did write a zine about psychogeography in Brisbane, particularly about development 
um, and how it affects our ability to form communities that aren't based around private profits and things like that. Um, and I just like thinking about it and reading other people thinking about it. So that's why we're going to be talking about psychogeography on the show today. Now, the two uh, practitioners I've got on the show are both people who do it in a very easy-to-understand, kind of popular way, trying to encourage everybody to do it. There is another strand of highly intellectualized writing and thinking about psychogeography, particularly in the UK, people like Will Self and Ian Sinclair. Um, I did think about including a little speech from Will Self, but I don't think we'll get time in today's show but uh, that's also another element of it, a uh, very kind of academic and intellectual exploration of things. And sometimes people get into a sort of mystic or spiritual reading of places and their significance, which is a part of it as well. And of course, um, the in Australia, there's a very long history of people connecting very deeply with the spirit of place as well. So that's very useful. Uh, one of the other situationist concepts, which I think comes up in some of these interviews, and so I'll just quickly demystify, is that of the derive, which was their suggestion that people take uh, walks with no plan and no phone or map or anything, but just guided by the city's contours to uh, wander through the city and explore what things take their fancy. And I think... That in particular has informed uh, both Nick Gadd and Vanessa Berry. So without uh, dawdling around on this radio show anymore, let's get into the interviews. We'll start with Vanessa Berry. Hello, I'm Vanessa Berry. I'm a writer and a zine maker from Sydney. And today I've got you on the show because we're going to talk about psychogeography and you are a, a self professed psychogeography practitioner, but it's one of those very vague terms, so I wonder if you can start off by giving us a bit of a definition of what it means for you. Sure. Well, it is one of those terms that can be as complicated or as simple as you want to make it. Um, for me, it's about um, being kind of observational and receptive to atmospheres as I walk around the city or urban environments, so it's very much about walking or being in places that perhaps are a little bit lesser noticed or a bit on the margins or even just picking up um, more unusual or unexpected moods or atmospheres in places that are very well known. Um, so, I mean, I, I think I've done this for a very long time. Uh, I started when I moved into the inner city as a younger person when I moved out of home. So this is in Sydney. Um, and I was just drawn to places that were abandoned or unusual in some way. Um, I mean, there's less and less of them now in Sydney, but this is back in the 1990s and there was more kind of vacant lots and um, spooky abandoned buildings and those kinds of places. So I did a lot of walking around in those kinds of environments. And I don't think I'd heard the, I'd, I heard the term psychogeography until I went to university. And the actual term comes from the 1960s um, when the artists and activists, the situationists, developed that term. Um, so, yeah, they were a Parisian artist and activist group. But I felt like when I encountered it, I was like, oh, okay, I know what that is. I kind of already do it. I just don't call it that. And so I think that's the kind of relationship a lot of people have with it. Mm. So your blog that you write now, and a book, in fact, as well, uh, called Mirror Sydney, is your own uh, kind of experiment in sharing your psychogeographic excursions. 
Can you tell us about the blog and, and what you do? Sure. Well, I started the blog in 2012, and um, so I've written about Sydney a lot in all my writing. So I started writing through making zines in the mid-1990s, and they were kind of, I mean, they weren't focused on places in particular, but they were autobiographical zines. So I wrote a lot about my life, it was doing those kinds of things I mentioned earlier, wandering around in the inner city and stuff like that. So I'd always had a bit of a presence of Sydney in my writing, but I wanted to make uh, start a project that really focused on the particular places I really loved. And now the the um, kind of general identity of Sydney isn't as this kind of more introverted or spooky kind of place. It's usually as more of a kind of an extroverted and um, wealthy and brash kind of place um, in sort of more general mainstream media, I guess. But it wasn't the way that I really experienced Sydney at all. And I knew a lot of other people felt that way too. And I thought I'd start the blog just as a way to celebrate some of the places I really loved um, and also to encourage other people to, to go on investigations of places they loved. And it, it, it tended to be places in the suburbs or like abandoned, quite a few abandoned theme parks arose in the, the first few years or just suburban oddities. Um, so that um, blog is still, it's still living now, but I kept it for about five years before it was published as a book. So the book came out in 2017, and um, that was some of the places from the blog, the most popular ones or ones that I uh, were my favourites, that I um, continued to work on and made into longer pieces for the book. And I also drew maps for the book. Yeah, it's interesting what you mentioned about Sydney and its general character, which is... Um, for one, is extremely like rushed. Everybody's in a rush in Sydney. The traffic's bad. Everything, and there isn't much kind of stopping to observe and enjoy necessarily. But also, there is this thing of um, Sydney being a this big world city and a, a kind of somewhat, I guess, faceless place in a, a big city where everybody's rushing around and things are expensive and things like that. And I guess Paris would have been probably the same for the situationists. Um, is psychogeography kind of a reaction against that the idea that the city is this big thing that we have no kind of control over or no individual place in oh yeah definitely and i mean one of the things with the situationists like activists like they were making these investigations of the city because they wanted it to change and one of the ways that they thought they could change it was by um, applying imagination to it and imagining how it could be thought of differently I think a lot of people who call themselves psychogeographers or whose creative work is inspired by it uh, have this relationship to imagination. I mean, I certainly do in, in my work. I mean, I would hate to think that all Sydney was, this place that I've lived my entire life, that all it was was a place where people rush around and um, you know, are forced to spend lots of money and be um, feel like there's no space in their lives. And I think, you know, definitely elements of that that's not untrue. Um, but you can also exercise resistance uh, by slowing down or by choosing to pay attention to different things, to the things that you're kind of being asked to pay attention to um, just kind of generally on the street or um, through uh, mainstream media, I guess. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely a resistant act. Um, and in keeping with practices like, yeah, slowing down and paying attention and things that people are talking about a lot more, I think, in the last, say, five or ten years. There was a great book um, by Jenny Odell called How to Do Nothing. Um, so she's from San Francisco and 
she wrote a book about it's about resisting the attention economy, sort of switching off from social media and things like that, and talking about the power of paying attention. She particularly talks about bird watching, but it doesn't have to be something that's so connected to the natural environment. Even I think it's uh, fundamentally it's just about paying more attention. And psychogeography definitely does that. It's um it's a way of making the familiar strange sometimes. I think, or just by being a bit quieter and more reflective and going actually maybe I'm not going to like join this great rush of people charging on to wherever if I just step to the side and have a bit of a look at what's over here maybe there'll be something interesting and I can take even just a few minutes to um to see where um you know some path leads or go into some kind of uh, hidden arcade um I, I still find things that I've, I've never found before um in the city and the suburbs um even though I've lived here all my life just by being curious you mentioned the political side of it there, and I think that's something I'm quite interested in, that the situationists were openly political. They were socialists. They were involved in, like, the May 68 uprising in France and things like that. And for them, it was quite a political act. And I think when people reference it now, they don't always sort of seem to think of it, express it as a kind of political thing. Do you think in your work that there's a, a political element to it, to trying to change the city you're in as well? Yeah, I mean, I I think that that act of paying attention, what you pay attention to is a very powerful act and by suggesting that you can pay attention to these other elements of the city, the ones that you're perhaps not meant to notice or are thought to be redundant or um, unusual is a way to get you to think about how you might want the city to be otherwise. Um, And it also is, I mean, one of the things about Sydney is... It um, has this great drive towards reinvention, so places are demolished and new places are constructed and then they're demolished and they'll they'll try it again. Um, And there's this sense of, yeah, that sort of sense of things being made continually new um, with a lack of reflection sometimes. So what psychogeography does is enable reflection. So perhaps it's not, I wouldn't describe it as a hard political stance, but it's certainly more of that everyday politics and thinking about yeah, where you put your energies, where you put your attention to. And uh, I do try to change people's um, point of view or way of looking at the city in quite subtle ways through kind of showing my own way of, of doing it. I mean, I think that idea of there being sort of secret or hidden sites to the city is really engaging for people, and that can often be a way in for people who, you know, might not think of themselves as particularly political people, um, but that's a way to get people interested in thinking, oh, well, you know, how did this place get to be the way it is and, and what kind of inequalities does it show up and things like that. So uh, I guess it's a softer approach, but... I think that connection is definitely still there. Mm. Your work does often, I guess, focus on the history, like you've kind of said, it's sort of hidden histories. It reminds me a bit of another hard-to-define term, which is hauntology, if you're familiar with that, like kind of looking at uh, what does the past say about their idea of a future that they built for that sort of is different to our present or something. Um, so I wonder about how you feel like the interplay of your exploration of the history of these places goes with, I guess, a experience of the present or like a, a looking forward toward the future of the place where you live. Yeah, well, I think that idea of ontology is one that's very interesting to me as well as psychogeography and that idea about what kind of traces or echoes of the past exist in the present um, and interplay of absence and presence, like what 
what prices remain and what which ones are there if you dig a little bit um, and what can that reveal. And so, yeah, I mean, it, with using history, like I, I, whenever I write about a place, I, I'll read a lot, um, but I'll be very selective about what I choose to include because I'm not a historian, I'm not, I'm not writing a history of the place. Um, so I'll choose particular, usually particular details that have some kind of resonance in the present day experience of the place. Um, so they provide some history of the place, but I wouldn't call them really histories of the place. They, they bring them in, they bring history in where, where needed. But I think it just all helps to enrich your understanding of the place that you that you move through, and sometimes seeing what yeah what kind of changes places have been through helps you to think about what you might want a place to be in the future, or see how things are are changing. So um, yeah, thinking about time in a dynamic way, and of course when you walk through a city, like yeah anywhere we're we're walking in any city in Australia, we're walking on ancient Aboriginal land, and all of the things, all of the the fixtures of the city are really very temporary and and recent things really and so that there's so many layers of time in any one place and sometimes we can see those um especially in sydney where like there's a the topography is really um present so it's got lots of hills and it's not like just to compare it to melbourne which is very flat city for example um sydney it doesn't have that similar kind of drama of how streets move around and, and so I always feel like that's kind of a link to the kind of deeper time of the place and then obviously on the streets walking around like there's things like ghost signs which might indicate a history is say 50 or 100 years old um, and then there's just completely new things where what's been there before has just been wiped away and there's some big new shiny building there which might be hideously ugly or look okay they really vary so how do you think your your own explorations in psychogeography have kind of added to your your understanding of the city or your place in it or you know your yourself as a individual I feel really proud of having recorded some of the places which have now disappeared so when I started in Sydney that was um yeah more than 10 years ago now, a lot of the places that I wrote about then have changed or disappeared. And that's not to say I think they shouldn't have. I mean, often there were places that weren't going to be heritage protected or anything and they were, you know, dilapidated or um, they just weren't going to stick around. But they are significant to people in different ways. And it's, it's I feel happy that I was able to record them. Um, and, yeah, having it as a blog means people can, you know, potentially look it up um, in however many years' time and if they remember something and there's still that information there. So, I mean, it might not be world-changing or life-changing, but I like to think it enriches people's sense of um, place and uh, feeling of attachment to places in the city and the suburbs, and, and that's important. I mean, if you, can, if you care about the place where you live, you're much more likely to care about what happens to it and the people in it and, and it being a good place to live for, for everyone, hopefully. Ide- maybe that's a bit idealist, but um, that's, kind of, that's the bigger picture driving it, I think. All right. Well, if people are interested in reading Mirror Sydney, how can they do that? Well, Google the blog. Um, just Google um, Mirror Sydney, Vanessa Berry, and you will find it. And it's also available as a book. Um, but if you go to the blog, there's a link to the book as well. Um, and you, you can buy it through bookstores online or your independent uh, bookstore. All right. Thanks very much, Vanessa. Thanks, Andy. It's been nice to talk to you. 
You are listening to The Paradigm Shift on Fortable Z 102.1 FM. We were talking with Vanessa Berry, who through her blog and book Mirror Sydney, explore what we might call psychogeography, the interplay between place and being, I guess, and our mental states. And you can, of course, read that by heading to her blog and check out some of her wanderings around Sydney's uh, lesser-known parts. And I've quite enjoyed it. I mean, I have lived in Sydney, and so it is of interest to me, maybe more so than other people. But I'm sure if that interview has piqued your interest, then you'll find plenty more there. Now, another prominent Australian blogger and book writer who calls himself a psychogeographer is Nick Gadd. He does a bit of a similar thing to Vanessa in that he walked around his city of Melbourne, picked a kind of plot to circumnavigate the city, and then he just wrote about what he would uh, see and feel in different places. And then it also became a book, although um, the context changed because his wife, who had been his walking partner, had passed away, and so the book also became about his personal feelings of these places given that he shared that experience so in this way nick is channeling a bit of the situationist in their idea of the derive you know uh, taking these unstructured walks through the city to see what you come across and how it affects you and so i thought i would have a chat to him too my name is nick gadd i'm a writer uh, from melbourne and the author of the book uh, melbourne circle so I'm talking to you today because on the show we are talking about psychogeography, which is a, a seldom used and hard to define term. Could we start off by saying what does psychogeography mean for you? You're right. Um, it's a term that is uh, much used by different people to mean different things. Um, for me, it's a way of exploring urban environments and especially trying to understand uh, or connect with the, um, the layers of stories that exist in a city or in a suburb, especially um, seeking access to things about it which are secret, hidden, lost, um, or in some way interesting, especially if those things engage with the um, the emotional lives of people. Yeah, so let's talk about Melbourne Circle and your um, practice of psychogeography. Um, it's a blog and a book. Can you tell us about what you do in Melbourne Circle? So it originated as a blog, and uh, what I did um, was, along with my wife, Lynn, um, we walked around the whole city of Melbourne in a series of connected walks um, over, over t uh, two years, looking for things that were of interest to us, uh, things that were like old bits of signage, uh, curious bits of architecture, interesting buildings, things that, the sort of things that you might walk past a thousand times and not notice or not pay attention to. That's what we were looking for, like some old faded lettering on a wall. We'd look at that and think, well, what is that? What does it say? And what, does it, what can it tell us about the building, about the history of this place? And we were investigating the kind of layered stories 
of um, of the city of Melbourne, and um, I, I wrote a series of blog posts about that, uh, about those walks, at, uh, which I called Melbourne Circle because all the walks eventually connected up into this circle around the city. And that later then became uh, the book Melbourne Circle Walking Memory and Loss and uh, I was particularly interested in themes of loss and memory. I should also mention that Lynn, my wife, passed away in 2018 and so the book is also about, uh, about grief and about personal loss and the way our story um, intersects with the story of the city and the history of the city. Yeah, it's very interesting the the personal angle of you writing about um yeah, the loss of your wife and I guess the way that you relate to the city differently having done those walks with your wife. And it is interesting then extending that to loss like that a city is constantly dynamic and changing, but we have these personal associations with it so that when it changes, there's this, this part of ourself that is lost. It's a very interesting uh, way that we each experience a place, isn't it? It is really interesting. It's very complicated, I think. Um, and what I've done in Melbourne Circle in my book is just try to tease out some of those aspects of it. I mean, like we all have places in a city that are of personal importance to us. You know, in a sense, we all have our own special spots. We all have our own maps of the city, you know, in our heads. You know, this is the place where um, something important happened, something good happened here, something bad happened here. And uh, that is not the same for any two people. It's always different. And then, but every time you go out on one of these walks, on one of these journeys, kind of paying attention, you're sort of creating a new history as well. It is one of the interesting dynamics of a city in that it's there's millions of people that live there, um, but also it is the city of millions of individual people, and you know these things there's a, a push and pull between different people's experience of a city and different people's desires. Um, it's quite a, a fascinating topic to explore. Um, yeah, it is. I think each of us has our own city in a way. But it's good sometimes also to step out of that, to step out of your uh, usual path and go off and explore new parts of the city. Uh, perhaps take a different route to work if you go to work or um, just get off the train at a different station and uh, be observant. And... Um, in Melbourne, we had much of the last uh, two years we spent locked down. And in that time, we weren't able to uh, go more than five kilometres away from our houses for quite a bit of the time because of the COVID. And um, in that time, a lot of people did start walking around their own neighbourhoods because you couldn't actually <laughs> go perhaps to the uh, as far as you were used to going. And in that time, people actually began to observe that there there were many things of interest in their local neighbourhoods that perhaps they hadn't seen before on their own doorsteps. So there's that aspect to it too, is of finding the unfamiliar in what you thought was familiar. Let's talk about ghost signs, which is a, a frequent part of your blog and writing. What do you find interesting about ghost signs? Yeah, so ghost signs are old signage um, representing people and businesses and organizations um, that uh, no, that no longer exist basically and um, 
there, we have many of these in Melbourne, especially around the older suburbs. And uh, what I find fascinating about them is that they're like a window back into the past. So you see a sign for something like Melbourne Steamship Company, for example, a huge sign, painted sign on a brick wall. And of course, the Melbourne Steamship Company doesn't exist anymore. Um, so you can go off and do a bit of research and find out about that company and it might lead you back into uh, a really interesting story. I mean, I've in the book I talk about a sign that I saw for a man called Dr. King. And this was a ghost sign that appeared on a wall in Melbourne saying, consult the celebrated specialist Dr. King. And the sign dated uh, from about 1890, so more than 100 years old. And I wanted to know who Dr. King was. So I went and did some research, and um, it's quite a long story, but I discovered he was a, a 19th century doctor who also practiced as a medical clairvoyant. And uh, you, the idea was you could send him a lock of your hair or a letter or some personal belonging, and he would diagnose you from that. And um, so it was quite an interesting story, not just about that individual, but also about the culture of uh, Melbourne at the time in the 1890s, which was, you know, before doctors were regulated. Basically, anybody could set themselves up in medical practice. Sounds kind of similar to the internet now. It is kind of like that, yeah, yeah. And uh, he would have been right at home on the internet, I think, Dr. King. He was quite a self-promoter. Um, and so ghost signs can lead you back into these interesting little uh, highways and byways. And there are so many signs around Melbourne for lost products like um, Wolf's Schnapps and Otis Tonic Tablets and these old medicines which no longer exist anymore. And, and also another thing I like about ghost signs is that often they can be really quite beautiful. They um, can be um, beautiful painted um, examples of the sign writer's craft, sometimes with some really beautiful lettering. And the fact that they faded uh, gives them a, an atmosphere which um, makes them quite intriguing and enigmatic, especially if they start to fade away and they're quite difficult to read. It becomes like looking at a puzzle, a crossword puzzle on the walls. And um, once you do start seeing these things, you see them everywhere. That's what, uh, that's what I've noticed and what a lot of people have said to me. Once you actually start paying attention to old signage, suddenly you see it all over the place. Quite a few people that are into psychogeography are into these like traces of the past that you find or sort of learning the histories of places. Um, what do you think seeing these things from the past contributes to our understanding of the present or our imagining the future? Um, well, that's a really interesting question, Andy. Um, I mean, I think for me it's about a sense of understanding who's gone before, what the layers of history are in a place, um, the way places have changed, you know, the fact that cities are these living organisms, they're not static in any way. I mean, like if you go to, in parts of Melbourne, for example, you'll see signage for um, the shoe industry, which points back to a time when Melbourne had a, a, a very substantial shoemaking sector, which now doesn't exist anymore. There are occupations that used to exist which don't exist anymore. You see them uh, advertised around the city. It gives you a sense, I think, these things evolve, but also that we have choices. I mean, it, there were times when we set out to build up manufacturing industry there were other times when we uh, decided basically to move it all offshore 
And now we look around and we see you know, the masses of, ma of uh, development that are going on and you wonder you know, how much real planning has gone into that. And I think sometimes if people had more sense of the history of a place, then they would uh, think more uh, carefully about what they do now and what we, what we build on it now. I mean, I, in the process of writing Melbourne Circle, I did uncover some pretty hair-raising stories about um, toxic dumps, for example, people, industries just dumping arsenic and other very toxic products in the ground with no thought for the future, really. So um, that, that stuff is still there. There are parts of Melbourne, the Melbourne suburbs, where you just can't build anything now because there's so much... Uh, toxic waste in the ground and people just dumped it there without thinking about it and then sealed it over not particularly well and left it there so i think thinking about the city like this makes you aware that you know there are choices and there there are things that we do now that are going to have a big effect in the future and um it's just good to understand your city it's just good to understand the place that you live a bit more not just um kind of walk around looking sort of at your own little bit of it, but kind of raise your eyes and look up and then try to even look down into the ground and understand it a bit more deeply. That's, I mean, that's what I get out of it anyway. Mm, well, that was going to be my next question is what do you personally think you've got out of doing Melbourne Circle? Um, I think a personal sense of, um, you know, everything I said before, but also a personal sense of what my connection is with this place. I mean, I, I believe that one of the things that gives meaning to our lives is our connections with place, with specific places. And the more understanding you have of that in all kinds of ways. I mean, and the way I do it is just one way of doing it. People have many ways of, of doing it. But the more understanding that you have of the place where you live, it kind of enriches your life and uh, hopefully gives you more understanding and more love for the place where you are. And I think that's a, that's a good thing. Okay, if people are interested in reading Melbourne Circle, how can they do that? Uh, well, the blog, uh, Melbourne Circle, you'll find easily online. And uh, my book is called Melbourne Circle, Walking Memory and Loss by Nick Gadd. And if you Google that, you should be able to either order it online or ask your bookshop to get it in for you. Okay, thanks very much for chatting with us, Nick. Thanks, Andy. It's been a pleasure. On the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ, Nick Gadd, he's the author of Melbourne Circle, where he walks around the city. It's a lot about ghost signs and about kind of uh, seeing the traces of an old Melbourne left in this new and shiny city. Um, but there's lots of different ways to explore the place that you live in and how we relate to it. I find it quite an endlessly fascinating topic, and it is endless right because you know each city brisbane has two million people or whatever and so it's times two million the different cities that exist here you know each different people's experience of it and um all the history of people that have come before and the things they built or the things that they wanted to build that didn't come to pass and the way that they're remembered or the way that they're forgotten you know all these things uh combined together to make the place where we live and the the community, the city that we are in now, and us as, of course, as individuals who are formed partially by our surroundings. 
And so I encourage you to start doing your own exploring. And part of it as well is getting out of the geography of commerce, right? These, these paths that are made for us to go between, you know, our home to our work to the shopping center um, and always guided by, you know, the advertisers telling us where to go, where to hang out, what stuff to buy, or even Google Maps, you know, telling us the the best route or whatever. It might not be the most interesting route, and who knows what you'll find if you, you know, uh, just take the time to look around and explore a bit. And so I hope uh, this show has inspired you a bit to explore your surroundings and not just the place they are, I think, but the place they could be. To me, that's really key about it is that part of it is thinking about what are the good things, what are the things we love, how can we protect them, how can we share them with others and uh, sustain them for future generations and things like that. And uh, it is about imagining uh, the city that we want as well as discovering the city that we have. And it can help us sometimes to look deep into the past as well. We have talked today on the show about Aboriginal connections to country. And it is one of the famous ways, I guess, in this continent that people do uh, connect with the surroundings is uh, this kind of traditional Aboriginal spirituality. And that's been very inspiring to me over the years as well. But I think as well... Um, we should demystify that, right? And it'd be everybody lives in a place, right? Everybody is sustained by the land around them partially, you know, the trees that are creating oxygen, the soil nutrients that are going into our food, the shelter that we have and things like that. And so everybody can take the time to appreciate that, to connect with it. And I think Thelma Plum, she's an Aboriginal woman, but she is Gamilaroi, right? Her... The big river in her country is the Namoy, but in this song, the brown snake, she's exploring uh, Brisbane River or Maywa, as it is known uh, traditionally. And so all of us can do that, you know, and we can appreciate our surroundings and we can look after them and see what clues they might hold for how we can live better. See you next week.